Hi everyone, welcome back to Prevention Nation. Where we believe education and awareness can change the culture of violence. My name is Roy Lutz. And I'm Caitlin Wagenfield. Welcome to Prevention Nation. Uh, it's Roy here with Caitlin and it is Fatherhood and Awareness Month. So, uh, Caitlin and I are going to talk for uh, just a short bit about fatherhood and then we're going to have a guest on. So, uh, Caitlin, what does fatherhood mean to you? So, as somebody that just recently lost their dad about six months ago, um, I have recently become aware of how important a father is in your life. Obviously, I always knew. Yeah, right. But now I don't have the privilege of having that person with me through Mm -hmm. every step of life. Um, And I know I've I've said it before around this office, I really had the best dad for me. Um, What was his name? uh, we called him Will, but mm-hmm. his first name was Howard. Yeah. My the, the men in my family do this weird thing where they name their kid after them, but then they all go by their middle name. So yeah. uh, my dad was Howard William, but my brother is William Casey, but he goes by his middle name. So I Casey guess we'll see if Casey okay. names his son Casey something and then calls him after his middle name. I, okay, okay. So. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know why they do that, but it, go, it goes back so far. Yeah. So Howard and William keep like rotating in. Casey's the new addition. Okay. But um, my dad, he just, Will, was the best dad for me. Um, even in the last time that I got to spend time with him. Um, so it was the day he actually went into the hospital. He died from cancer, um, as you know. But yeah. um, he was just wonderful. Um, He was suffering for a long time and he still managed to make things about other people. Um, That last time I saw him, what he fell and went to the hospital. And then I saw him after that, but he wasn't really himself. Right. So I don't count that. But the last time I saw him for like who he was, who I knew him to be, Mm -hmm. he was taking care of me. Yeah. We were hanging out. I was showing him new music that I really liked and talking to him about how like why I liked it that's something that we did a lot together Mm -hmm. um we were a very musical family like my mom played flute my dad played the trumpet my brother played the piano I didn't play an instrument but I what did your dad play um the trumpet trumpet very cool yeah he loved um like New New Orleans and like music from New Orleans and like the big bands so we actually had a Mardi Gras themed celebration of life for him he was very very cool yeah he was a cool guy he sounds super cool very musical family so we would talk about music and I would talk about like why the lyrics mattered to me and like why they were cool so that's what we were doing like the last time I got to hang out with him and then he gave me money and he was like here like I know you're not gonna ask for it but here like here's some money to just you know i'm a baby adult i'm 23 years old you know it was just nice to have your parents still take care of you sometimes yeah so um that was like my last experience with him yeah what's your first experience with him what's the first memory you have of your dad oh i was little so he Mm -hmm. worked nights my dad was a super hard worker to provide for our family we were like working class family my mom at um like 45 years old decided that she wanted to go back to college my dad was like perfect you're gonna go to nursing school i'm gonna work nights so you can do that and then like he can be home during the day with the kids so she can study like really just like a great family that worked very hard and he worked really hard so i woke up really early i do i loved when he worked nights because i got to sleep in bed with my mom Mm -hmm. and um i was up really early and i was just sitting at i had this little table and I was just sitting there when he walked in. He was like, oh, you're awake. And I was like, can I have some cereal? 
and he got me cereal and ate breakfast with, or ate cereal with me. I guess it's not his breakfast because he hadn't been to sleep yet. Right. But that was my first memory with my dad. Huh. Interesting. Sharing cereal with your dad. Yeah. It's That's super cool. So bizarre. And it really could have been like easily as go back to bed. Like it's like five in the morning. I want to go to sleep. But he took the time just to eat cereal with me. He just was that person. Like it didn't matter what he had going on. He was very yeah. family forward. Um, which is so weird because whenever I talk to my parents, um, they waited a while to have me. So my parents were 40 and 44 when they they had me. I'm the youngest of six kids. And there's obviously some big gaps in there. Mm -hmm. But um, with me and my brother that are closest in age, there's such a gap between us and like others. And then also there's like foster children thrown Mm -hmm. in there that I very much count as my siblings. My parents raised them. um, That... My dad was like, I don't know if I want biological children. Huh. Um, yeah, because my oldest brother was adopted. His name's Todd. Um, and my dad adopted him. He was my dad's best friend's kid, and his dad stepped out. So he knows the importance of what a father is and stepped mm. in for him. And my dad was that person throughout the community. Um, he was a football coach and was a mentor to so many kids. And then yeah. when my brother, Casey, who... What ended up being 6'4 and 250 pounds decided he didn't want to play football and, you know, broke my dad's heart. Right. My dad became a robotics coach. My dad didn't know anything about robotics, but he knew about, like, leadership. Sounds like he knew a lot about fatherhood, though. Like, it didn't matter if he had experience with robotics or whatever his kids' interests were. He was willing, as a father, to learn that interest and, and engage in that interest. So Exactly. Yeah. He just... And he'll tell you he learned that from his dad because oh. he said his dad was just So the did best you know your dad. grandpa? He passed away when I was three. Okay. But I was really lucky because he actually lived right across the street from me. So I have um, these memories of we would go to Houston Woods in mm-hmm. Oxford and we would just go look at wildflowers. And okay. so he would take me and we would he wasn't very mobile, but he would take me on a scooter, which I thought was so fun. And we'd look at wildflowers. My brother would be, like, playing in a creek with my grandma. So I was like, well, that's lame. I get to look at beautiful flowers. And we would talk about them. And he knew so much. He was a farmer. So he knew, like, all about nature and wildlife. And he would tell me all of the flowers. He was super cool, too. So What a long tradition of fatherhood in your family. That's super cool. Yeah. Very lucky. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Yeah, I think that's so cool. And I think that's something important for our listeners to you know, maybe latch on to is, you know, when we, when we think about fatherhood, that fatherhood is, is a very intentional role. It isn't just something that you, uh, that's passive, you know, that you're just there present. And I know historically it was, I mean, I think about that a lot with fatherhood. I think about how many men, um, over time through time, um, missed out on such great relationships with their children because of the, hyper-masculine, um, stereotypical roles of what a father or a man was supposed to be. Um, I did not have uh, an engaging father. I didn't have a father. I mean, I have a father, but he wasn't around uh, split when I was a kid. So it was just uh, it was just my mom. My mom was my, my dad in that regard. Um, so, yeah, fatherhood means a lot of different things. So Sometimes moms can be the best dads, too. I say that all the time, that my mom was the best dad ever. Although she didn't teach me anything about mechanics, and that's something I always wished I had had a dad for. Because when I was a kid, I know uh, a fatherhood, the absence of a father was uh, pretty powerful. Like, 
when I was in scouts and people would have, they would do like father-son scouting. I never got to go on those field. I never got to go on those trips or I never got to do those activities that fathers were supposed to or when they had their, your dad come in to school and talk about what they're, you know, on career day. No, <laughs> so not my dad. So, um, yeah, I think dads are really important, which is, I think, why, you know, uh, how I feel about fathering is very similar to what, you know, Will was, what kind of father Will was, was that I want to be there for my kids and want to be present for them and engaged with them. So, um, Caitlin, thank you for sharing about your dad. This, uh, I know that's a tough topic and thank you. Yeah, of course. I know we also had a really good conversation this week with somebody else about fatherhood. We did. So, um, my friend Glenn Harris, um, is, we had a great conversation, uh, about fatherhood and, uh, he works at ODVN and, but he worked for many, many years in the, in the field of fatherhood. My guest uh, today is uh, Glenn Harris from ODVN. Glenn, could you talk, uh, share just with our audience listeners a little bit about what your title is there and what the work is that you do up at ODVN? Absolutely. So I am the Director of Prevention at Ohio Domestic Violence Network. Uh, my work focuses on engaging young men and boys to prevent violence. Uh, and the way that that occurs is that we work with young men and boys around um, healthy masculinity, gender norms. Um, and things like patriarchy, power control, things that we often learn through our masculine experience. You know, sometimes it's, you know, whether it's domination, competitiveness, those types of things, uh, yeah. and making sure they're not surfacing in our, you know, personal relationships, work relationships, things of that nature. Okay, so, and thank you for sharing that. Um, but today we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, fatherhood. And I'm interested how your work now is impacted by the work that you did previously around the fatherhood arena. What was your, you know, and you've talked a lot about this over the last, you know, I think Glenn, I've known you for almost five years now and I've heard you mention your work in the fatherhood, but I don't honestly really know what, what did you do in the work of fatherhood? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know if you remember the uh, hair commercials from back in the eighties where they had, you know, not only my client, but I'm also the president or not only uh, the president, but I'm also a client or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. The hair so club for men me. or something, I think. Yeah, yeah, hair club for men, I think it was. So, yeah, um, I had my first son at 19. Uh, and, and I don't know if you've ever heard me tell some of my personal story, uh, but my father was incarcerated during most of my you know younger years. So from the time I was 14 to 22, my father was incarcerated, wasn't there. At 19, I find myself being a father. At the time I was in college, I'm getting ready to have a son. Um, and, you know, having a lot of questions, not, you know, having the absence of my father, still struggling with that having my own issues as, you know, a young boy myself and trying to figure out some of those things. Um, but then also not having the exact blueprint of what, you know, fatherhood was, what it looked like and what it should be in our community. Yeah. Um, in the urban community where I came from, it wasn't, you know, rare to, you know, see other men and boys and have, you know, a group of 12, 13, 14 friends and it'd be two fathers amongst the entire collective, you know, yeah. that was not unrare to see, you know, good, positive adult male role models, especially in a fathering role. Um, so a funny thing happened, you know, during my collegiate experience, I got into like mentoring, working with young people, which, you know, formed into a relationship with the Urban League. Next thing I know, I'm actually working at the Urban League. Like, I, this nonprofit was not part of my original journey. I, I, I went to school for business. I wanted to go work for the Browns or for the Buckeyes or in somewhere in the sports capacity. Um, and a funny thing happened when I got into mentoring, when I got into community work, and the first time a young person said to me, thank you, you changed my life. 
that became more rewarding than any paycheck I had ever gotten. And I was like, you know what? That's what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to change lives. Uh, so I got into the business of changing lives. Um, when I got to the Urban League, one of the first ideas I had was I wanted to do something around fatherhood because I know I had my own personal struggles. I had my own journeys. I saw, you know, friends and peers you know, in trouble with child support, going to jail and different things like that. And I was like, you know, it's got to be some answers. And to share with you my own personal journey, you know, after, you know, 19, when my relationship ended, now I've got to, you know, co-parent with, you know, my partner. Um, I decided the company I was working for, I was, you know, doing pretty good, decided to go back to college at 24. So I dropped out at 19, 24, decided to go back to college. I got a five-year-old son. And unfortunately, my child support was set at like seven, 800 bucks a month, something that I just couldn't afford to pay as a full-time college student working part-time. So I would make partial payments, 200 there, 300 there. And I remember my senior year, I got a letter in the mail on college campus saying uh, I needed to show up for felony contempt court for not paying my child support. And I'm like, are you serious right now? Like I'm in college trying to do better for me and my son and you're going to take me to court for not paying the full child support? <laughs> like, okay, whatever. Uh, and I remember going to court and one of the football coaches went with me. Uh, and, you know, we explained to the coach, like, look, you know, I'm actively involved in my son's life. My son is on campus with me every other weekend. He comes, like, I'm involved in my son's life. So it's mm -hmm. not like I'm not a contributor to my son. But financially, yeah, I have struggled because I'm in college. They just said, you know, unfortunately, the law is the law, and you're still going to do 30 days in jail. And I was like, are you serious? It's the middle of football season. He's like, you know what? We're, we're going to respect that. We're going to wait to the end of football season. We're also going to respect your school schedule. But what you're going to do is you're going to turn yourself in every Friday and we'll let you out every Sunday for uh, 10 weekends straight. So that's how I did my 30 days in jail for the last couple weekends of my senior year. I literally had to go to jail. One of those weekends, I remember sitting in a jail cell. And when you check in, everybody gets a, a band and my band happened to be white. And I remember looking at the guy in, in the jail cell with me. And his was yellow. And I'm like, well, mine is yellow. Why is your... Uh, mine is white. Why is yours yellow? And he says to me, oh, well, this is called a rolly. I'm here for a federal crime. I just got caught with 20 kilos of cocaine on the way back from Miami. That's that. Now that I'm like, wait a minute. Something's wrong with this picture. I'm in here for child support. You're in here for trafficking 20 kilos of cocaine. Something's wrong with this picture. Why am I here? Right. Right. Um, so right then and there, I would say a liar, a, a fire kind of got lighted under me. Like I knew something about this system needed to change. Like this wasn't it. You know, the way that the system treated me literally gave me every reason to fail. Like I, I could have failed school at that point. I could have, you mm -hmm. know, a whole lot of things could have happened at that point. But you know, I was determined to, you know, be successful and have a, a certain amount of success. So when I got to the Urban League and I had this idea, like, look, I, I want to do some fatherhood programs. I thought that was just the perfect thing to do, the perfect thing that our community needed. I knew it was a, other, a lot of other young men that were struggling, whether it be with, you know, child support, whether it be just, you know, seeing their kids on a regular basis or whether it's just keeping a job. I knew yeah. there was young men out there like me who needed help. Uh, so, you know, I was able to get a program started, have some great success. Uh, the program I started at the Columbus Urban League is still going today. Uh, and it's 20 years strong. And, and, you know, they've had countless, countless fathers go through that program, go through that process uh, and get the skills and resources they need to be as successful as they possibly can. Glenn, you have an amazing story. You have an amazing story. I wish you shared it more because I've heard it. <laughs> I've heard little bits of it every now and again. But 
I, I'm very open. I share this story quite often, but I see it as a blessing and a curse. And the reason why I say that is I remember being 14 years old. And for the first time, my mom taking me to visit my dad. My dad was at a facility. It was called London Correctional Facility, which is one of the oldest, most archaic prisons we have in the state. Yeah. And I remember going into that building and hearing those metal iron doors slam shut. It's a very profound, it like it's a sound to this day, like literally 30 years later, I never forget. I remember leaving that prison and having that sound echo in my head. I remember leaving that prison thinking, I can't believe they have my dad locked up in there. But most importantly, it, what I did for myself is that, oh, you best believe you will never see me in here. Never. Okay, so how did how did you how did you settle that in your brain when there you are, your last month of college, and you were sitting in jail? How, how did that connect at all? It it did. It, it came full circle. It's so like I just said, I made that promise that I would never be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I would never be behind those doors, and here I am. Right? Yep. It, it, I had to come to peace with the fact that there were some circumstances out of my control and that that momentary period of time, although I felt unnecessary, was just part of my journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, and it's funny, I tell this story a lot, even the work I do today. So I used to be that young person. And, and you know what? In full honesty, there was a moment I probably sat in that jail cell and I probably cursed God. Like, you know, how dare you? Why are you doing this for me? I'm a great guy. Like, why are you taking How could you not? Yeah. But then I I remember sitting at a table with the governor and I'm getting a million dollars to do a fatherhood program. And I'm like, thanks, God. I get it. I know why you took me through all that. Because without those experiences, I wouldn't have been the asset that I've been to my community. So absolutely. Well, Glenn, that leads into the next question then, you know, cause I think that's just perfect. And, and I feel the same way. I feel like all of my experiences have created an opportunities for me to be the person I am in this work. So how has your fatherhood work? How had, did that life experience um, prepare you for what you're doing at ODBN working, you know, in ending violence, working in as an engaging men coordinator. I mean, talk with, talk with us a little bit about that. So I would tell you, Roy, the most troubling experience I had doing, and I'm going to start with this this one quick story. So this is about oh, seven, eight years into the fatherhood program. And I can remember one day a young, young gentleman, maybe about 24, 25 years old, shows up to the office and he wants to get into the fatherhood program and he wants to get in. He wants to get in like right now. Like it's an emergency. He's got to get in today. And I'm like, you know, unfortunately, the group started about two weeks ago. So we have another group starting in about a month or so. You know, I could definitely get you in that group. But something about the urgency in his voice said, you know, dig a little deeper, find out what's going on. Yeah. So long story short, this guy had literally, literally two days prior, had just gotten out of the county jail from doing six months in the county jail for domestic violence. His wife of four years um, had cheated on him. They separated. They had a huge fight. He went to jail. Um, and at this point, he hadn't seen his kids in six months. The judge said, you can't see your kids until your probation was over, which he had like a year probation or something like that, and a few other stipulations. So he thought, well, if I do this fatherhood class, if I go do some better intervention, if I do a bunch of proactive stuff, maybe that can change and I can see my kids soon. 
So I said, you know what? I'm going to make an exception. I said, if you're willing to come to the office tomorrow, spend about two hours with me, I'll get you caught up to the current group and I'll let you join the current group. But you're going to have to do those first two weeks with me one on one. Right. So we did that. He joins the group and he's in the group for about three weeks. This is a 12 week group. We're about five weeks into the group. And on a Tuesday afternoon, he comes in and I'm trying to, because the, the group was like on during the day from like 10 to noon. He comes in that day and he's very, very uh, irritated, but won't necessarily speak. Right. And I said, Hey, can you come back to the office later this afternoon? I got some time about three. If you want to sit down and talk about what's going on. Yeah. Make the long story short. He doesn't show up. The very next night I cut on the news. One of his friends, yeah, one of his close friends told him that he had saw his ex-wife at the mall with some new man and his kids that absolutely infuriated. Like the last thing he wanted to think was that another man was raising his kids, right? And absolutely right. infuriated. So he shows up at you know the house at like 12 o'clock midnight one night, banging on the door, demanding to see his kids. And the mom shoots him through the door. Oh, kills man. him. Shoots and kills him. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like I, I literally, I felt like a failure. Like I, I absolutely failed this guy. Like there, I knew something was going on. I could have been more intentional. I could have, you know, you make every excuse or every reason, like what you should have, could have done differently, you know, in retrospect, not knowing how severe things were. Um, the woman uh, was not charged with the crime because of the previous incidents of domestic violence. And he had just gotten out from doing six months in jail. It was justified self-defense. He had no re he had there was a restraining order. He wasn't supposed to be at the house. Um, so I fast forward to a couple years later. Um, I have now switched over to doing consulting work. So the fatherhood work was so great that I was able to transition to some consulting work, travel the country, help other communities set up fatherhood programs, all kind of stuff. I get an email one day from um, a lady who works at the How Domestic Violence Network and says, Hey, Glenn, we have this opportunity you should take a look at. Um, because you know, you'd be perfect for it. And yeah. the first thing I saw was domestic violence. Like, no, I don't do that. No. <laughs> like, I have zero interest in domestic violence, right? And she says, um, and coincidentally, this woman who works um at the How Domestic Violence Network, I had been mentoring her son for over 10 years uh, through a mentoring program I started back at the Urban League. So yeah. her sons, who are now 23, 24 years old, I had known since they were 13, 14. And part of that work, part of that mentoring was all healthy masculinity. It was all, you know, let's get out the man box. Let's, it was all these things that I had no idea was considered prevention. I had no idea was considered engaging men. For me, it was just the right thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was just yeah. you know, working with men. Like I, I knew the issues I struggled with as a young man. Um, and you know what? And, and I'll, I'll share this with you because this is a huge impetus for a lot of the work that I do. So. At 18 years old, literally two weeks after graduating from high school, I had an altercation with another gentleman who went to a rival high school. Uh, we had some words. We had changed some words um, at a you know neighborhood park um, after a basketball game. Long story short, that escalated to this person pulling out a gun, right? When that person pulled out a gun, I'm at the park with all my peers, all my friends, everybody's around and when he pulls out the gun everybody's like oh like oh my gosh he put out a gun but something in my mind was 
I can't look like a punk. Like mm-hmm. something in my mind clicked. I can't look soft. I've got to man up, right? And as this man pulls this gun and points it at me, I literally walk to him until my head stops at the nose of the gun. And I said, you've got to the count of three to pull the trigger or else all hell's going to break loose. Yeah. Long story short, I said one. And by the time I said two, I was already swinging, right? Huge altercation, huge park fight, the whole nine yards. Long story short, I look back on that day, probably once a day for the rest of my life. I literally could have died that day. Yeah. Literally could have died trying to prove my manhood. This is what masculinity did. Masculinity has robbed so many men of being affectionate, loving parents to their children. Absolutely. Which is which has robbed them of the love that we experience in our lives, you know, the Absolutely. joy in our lives. Um, so yeah, your masculinity almost robbed you of your life. It robs many men of their lives. I think it's just tragic. And and not just like literally like my life, but they're like so. And I, I, I'm, I barely tell this story, but you don't have to edit this because I, I don't care who sees it. But there's a point in time in my life, my sophomore year of high school, my GPA was literally a 0.8. Mm. I took, I thought school was all about girls and sports. You know, books in mm. my community, in the urban community, books were for the girls. I was here for the sports. I was here for the girls. Not much else really mattered, right? And then to have a culture shock and go to a totally different community, I go to the suburbs, to whereas now being smart is the cool thing to do, right? So here I go from a point eight, and now I'm getting a 3.8 easy, consistently. And it's like, yeah, you could have did that the whole time, but that wasn't what was you know masculine in your, in, in your former community, right? So it's like, how do we change you know, what masculinity is? You know, like being... Having feelings, not masking. Being smart, not masking. Being a nerd, not masking. Right? Playing soccer, not masking. Um, and showing I, up I, to school, not masking. I mean, all of it, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, so. I, yeah absolutely, right? Um, and then it's it's how do we we so easily get into the toxic behaviors just to show the masculinity, like you know, the underage drinking and all those things that come along with it. Like I tell the story, I lost my virginity trying to that prove I was a man. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, older, I'm a freshman in high school, older older senior women, uh young lady decides to take an interest on me, shares that interest, and everybody's like, ooh, such and such wants you, what you gonna do? Yeah. Well, I guess I gotta prove my manhood. You sure do. If you don't, there must be something wrong with you. What is wrong with you? Absolutely. Who wouldn't do that? So, yeah. Well, then how does that work in, I mean, so what are you pulling all into this and what do you see the outcome for courageous conversations? I mean, this is around men, right? Masculinity, mm-hmm. courageous conversations. Mm-hmm. What What do you see as the final outcome? In 10 years from now, what did courageous conversations do for this conversation around masculinity? For me, I just hope it inspires young men and boys to have the conversation and seek out safe places they can have those conversations, right? I was often that young kid or boy where although what was around me may be going on and I, I knew it was wrong, I didn't have the confidence to say, hey, guys, we shouldn't be doing this, right? Because everybody else was doing it and I didn't want to stick out. I'm hoping that this conversation gives that young person like me the courage to say, you know what? Not only is this right, we shouldn't be doing this, I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to be witness this. And I'm not going to remain silent about it, right? It's how do we change what's normal? How do we change what's acceptable? 
um, because I struggled. Like, I wish, I wish, I wish I could go back and do middle and high school all over again and be the young man that I really was. Because oftentimes, I was the young man that I thought I was supposed to be based upon the examples around me. Well, then I'm going to close this out with a, a question, uh, and I'll go first with the answer. Um, as a one father to another, what has what is what is a fathering experience you have that you think is just that lets you know that all that hypermasculinity, all that stuff, is all BS? You know, and, and the, I'll go first and share with you. Every night, all three of my kids. When they were little, it probably ended around seven or eight, I guess, for each of them. Um, but every night uh, I sang them a song. For Ava, or for Lauren, my oldest, it was Goodnight, My Angel from Billy Joel. For Ava, it was um, Whenever I See Your Smiling Face by James Taylor. And for Ethan, it was You Are My Sunshine. Every night before bed, I sang. And I remember thinking to myself, it was the only place in my life, and I don't sing well, I have a terrible singing voice, but I remember thinking to myself, that was the only place that I had, I possessed no such thing as masculinity at that point. I was neither man nor woman. I was neither male, female, masculine, feminine. I was a father in a room with my child singing a song and providing love and peace and comfort. That to me was just one of those moments where I realized every night almost when I sang it, I thought, this masculinity stuff is BS. It's not even real. It's just fake. So share with me a, a little bit about your parenting experience, your fathering experience that meant a lot to you. You know, it, it's, I appreciate the story you tell. And and I'm going to share a, a story with you. And this is a personal story. Um, and it's not, you know, my own personal fathering story, but one of a close friend. Yeah. This actually happened about three years ago. This was, um, Right after, you know, the, the height of COVID had ended, we had a, a conference down in Atlanta. It was a CDC conference. And while I was down there, there's a uh, very close friend I have from high school. So he's two years older than me, so a little bit older. Yeah. But he was the one of those real alpha masculine guys that I always looked up to. He was, you know, the roughest, toughest on our football team. If anybody was messing with you, you went and got Kevin because, you know, everybody was scared of Kevin. Like, Kevin was the rock. You know what I mean? Like, Kevin yeah. was the tough guy. So when I was down in Atlanta, I said, you know what? I'm going a, I'm to a check up on Kevin because Kevin lives in Atlanta now. I said, I'm going I'm to check up on Kevin, see if I can catch up with him, see what he's up to. I haven't seen him in a couple years. I'm going to go see Kevin. So it works out. He comes, picks me up from the hotel one night. It's like a Thursday night. Uh, I think we go have a drink. We go back to his house. And we started just having a conversation, and I think it started with, well, what are you doing in Atlanta? It's like, oh, yeah, I'm here from, uh, you know, with the CDC. I do violence prevention, and I start, you know, explaining the type of work I do. And as I'm explaining this, I can see his interest peaked, like he's leaning into the conversation. And it's kind of odd because it's like, all right, this is Kevin the tough guy. Why is he leaning into this conversation like this? This is a little odd, right? And he stops me at one point. He goes, do you remember three years ago, my son was killed up in Columbus? So he had a son that was killed here in Columbus, which was one of the reasons why he moved to Atlanta. He wanted to get away, change the environment, get away from some of the violence. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I, was like, I, I, I do remember that, Kevin. I was like, you know, how are you doing about that? And the moment that I said that, 
he just broke down in tears. I mean, he literally broke down. This is a guy that's 6'4", 240, and I mean profusely crushed. And I embrace him, I hug him, and I'm like, Kev, are you okay? Is everything going out? He looks at me and goes, you know, this is the first time I've cried about it. He said, this is the first time I felt comfortable crying about it. He said, after you told me what work that you did, I figured it was okay for me to finally cry. Wow, and man. that hurt me. It, yeah. it really hurt me to see a grown man in his 40s, right? Like literally almost 50, feeling like he doesn't have the permission to grieve the loss of his own child. That the moment that he shows that, it somehow implies weakness. That it somehow implies, you know? Yeah. And we had probably about Funny thing is, I think I probably sat out there on that man's porch about two or three o'clock in the morning, just crying and having just conversations, right? Yeah. And towards the end of it, he looks at me, he says, you know what? I don't think I've ever had a conversation with another man like this. Maybe my mom, maybe an aunt, but I've never had a conversation with another man like this. I don't think another man has even ever seen me cry. Is that why you do this? I mean, is that what is that where I mean, does courageous conversations come out of this? Yes, yes, it's providing space. It's and and you know what? It's sometimes it's it's just in who we are. Like just a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, I'm playing poker with a bunch of buddies I grew up with, a bunch of college buddies. Uh, and at some point, the conversation turns to I think we we're watching a basketball game. So somebody makes a comment about the cheerleaders, and it's the typical masculine conversation that typically right. happens, right? So I'm just totally ignoring the conversation. Like, I'm not getting involved, looking at my cards or whatever. And one of the guys just says randomly, Glenn, how come when these conversations come up, you always get quiet? You're never part of these conversations. And I just kind of, like, smile. And I go, that's just not who I am. And he goes, well, what is that supposed to mean? Because he knows that's a part of who I used to be, right? So I reached in my pocket. I had some business cards. I handed him a business card. And I explained to him the work that I did. And he was like, oh. I get it now. So now, anytime I'm around, like, people know, like, that's not the conversation to have. You know what I mean? Like, it's you can set a tone uh, by just your mere presence. And by letting mm-hmm. people know what you stand for and what you believe in. Well, Glenn, I, I will tell you, ever since I first met you, I've always, I, I've just always, it's been, you wear it on your sleeve. I just know what you're about. Um, I always get a sense anyways of what you're about and, and your passion for this work. Um, thank you so much, Glenn, for being on this uh, podcast. Thank you. Just having a conversation with you. Forget about the podcast. Forget about all those things, right? Just thanks for having a conversation with me about this stuff that's meaningful. Um, and it just, you know, to be honest with you, you just inspired me to even dig in deeper to the courageous conversations and and to do more. So, you know, no better, do better, be better. Right. I mean, that's, uh, you don't, you don't say that, you know, for no reason. I mean, it's, it's purposeful and intentional. So, um, Very so that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to encourage our listeners also in hearing some conversations around fatherhood to know better, do better, be better, know better, uh, you know, know better what it means to be a, a man, a father, do better, um, you know, at being a, a father and at trying to be intentional about fatherhood and then be a better dad. Um, that's what I'm going to encourage all my listeners to do. Thank you, Glenn, so much. I appreciate having you on. Absolutely. Thank you so much.